number of appeals for recruits have been issued today. The Admiralty want men experienced in marine internal combustion engines for service as enginemen in yachts or motorboats. Others who have had charge of motorboats and have good knowledge of coastal navigation are needed as uncertified second hands. Application should be made to the nearest registrar, Royal Naval Reserve, or to the fishery officer. It was May 31st, 1940, around 5 p.m., when the phone rang at the Lightoller home. Charles had been waiting for the call. Just days before, the BBC had asked for boats that could be requisitioned to rescue the British Expeditionary Forces from Dunkirk. On May 10th, Hitler's Panzer Division had cut through the Ardennes Forest, invading Western Europe. The French, Belgians, and even the British had eyed Germany suspiciously for some time. They had been at war for months, but they had assumed incorrectly that the heavily fortified Maginot Line would stop any attempts by Hitler to invade the country. The Lightholders had three sons. Their youngest, Herbert Bryan, had died months before. He had been one of the RAF's first casualties in Germany. Their middle son, Richard Trevor, was somewhere in the middle of all this chaos. And their eldest, Roger, was waiting for his cue to go. After hanging up the phone, Lightoller confirmed the phone call was from the Admiralty. They wanted his boat, the Sundowner. They wanted it delivered to Ramsgate. Lightoller agreed they could have her, but he and his son Roger would take her. Launching from Ramsgate into pure hell with no weaponry, they arrived to bombers and burning ships and low projected numbers of successful rescues. Prime Minister Winston Churchill said of the 400,000 troops there, he expected to rescue only somewhere in the 40,000 range. All around them, bombers were screaming through the air. From his deck, Lightoller stared and surveyed the scene with pipe in mouth. The whole time, he would think of his youngest and recall a conversation they'd had one morning about aviation. Lightoller still hated flying, but he had learned a lot from Brian. Lightoller was older, more tired, but the fight had never left him. Every tragedy, every near miss, every lesson, everything leads to Dunkirk. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Charles Lightoller, Episode 4. After World War I ended, Lights figured he would return to his climb at the White Star Line. The merchant servicemen he noted were exhausted at war's end and were tired of being shot at. The White Star Line appointed Lightoller as chief officer of the Celtic, and he noted at first the men aboard struggled to return to normalcy, but eventually they did. Lights waited 
and waited to be appointed to the Olympic. But that time never came. Chief officer was his highest ranking yet, but it was a ship of, quote, his boyhood's ambition, not the one he thought he deserved to be aboard. Years passed, and then Lytoller suddenly realized what was happening. The White Star Line was under new ownership, and they were trying to distance themselves from the memory of its worst disaster, the Titanic. And they accomplished this by hiding the surviving crew on smaller ships. When he realized he was trapped, he turned to his wife for advice. What do I do? Was answered with, You stay home with us. Their children were growing up, and they needed a father figure. He sat in his cabin on board the Celtic and wrote his resignation, tears filling his eyes. This was the only life he'd ever known, and he now sat in the White Star Line's Liverpool office where management took a look at the heartfelt letter and said, Oh, so you're leaving us. Thank you for your service. Goodbye. He was promptly led out the door where the aging Lightollers stood in the street, terrified. He had played company man and struggled so long that he was stunned, not sure what to do. He still carried the ghost of the Titanic with him everywhere, every day. He had never been much good at anything else, and at 50, he felt for the first time in his life, fear. He had stared death in the face and had found nothing scarier than the idea of being aging with nowhere to go. He hopped on a tram and went home to Sylvia and the kids. It was his wife who would not allow him to wallow. At first, Sylvia suggested he try journalism or writing, and the Christian Science Journal asked Lytoller for a story or two, thinking it would be a boost to their image having a hero of the Titanic writing for them. Now, whether Lytoller was as devout a Christian scientist as he said he was, I don't know. But the gig quickly fell apart as the paper caved in. It turns out he was quite a good writer, but his worldview was perhaps a bit narrow. Maybe a book. In the meantime, money was tight, and Lightoller's years at sea couldn't get him a job elsewhere. Finally, Sylvia had an idea that kept the family afloat. They would open up their home to boarders and cram themselves, all seven of them, in its basement. It seemed that everything he applied for he was too old to do or underqualified. They hid as much of the struggles as they could from their family, even acquiring a small boat to take the kids on holiday. As Sylvia ran the inn, Lightoller began to return to the sea casually a bit, even taking his boat, the Mutt Two, on a competitive race, Dover to Calais. On June 8, 1929, some experienced yachtsmen urged officials to cancel the event due to poor conditions. Visibility was going to be a big problem. Lightoller smirked 
As crews organized lifeboats and flares for the first leg of the race, he knew most of those men would have not thought to brought a compass. The seas were rough and foggy, and meanwhile behind him other ships were carried off. One group unknowingly went in a perfect circle, yelling for help in French once they came into contact with the shore, only to realize that they were back in Dover. In what sounds like a scene from an action comedy, Commander Lightoller successfully made the first leg of the trip. In the distance behind him, however, boats were sinking, active rescues were underway, and others were just completely lost. No lives were lost, but the race to Calais received mockery in the newspapers, calling it chaos. But Lightoller enjoyed himself immensely with his ego stroked, loving one particular footnote biographer Patrick Stinson noted. It read, quote, Commander Lightoller was the only one to get there with no trouble. After toying and tinkering around with other hobbies, Lightoller finally found the other thing he actually excelled at, much to the annoyance of his wife and, I assume, neighbors. With the help of his son Trevor, Lights built a chicken coop. He was going to raise some hens. At first, Sylvia was annoyed by the ideal, but then the family began to turn a profit. It was surplus money, as the inn had been doing pretty well. But in 1929, the Lightollers were comfortable enough and had enough money coming in to get Charles a boat. The boat was crafted for lights in Port Victoria out of materials that were salvaged or bid on by a shipyard owner. They found the boat in a nearby yard, and it was ripped apart and rebuilt for around a thousand pounds. She was launched on the 28th of June, christened by Sylvia the Sundowner. As Sylvia smashed the bottle, she cried, May God bless all who sail in her. When she looked down, her fingers were bleeding. Lightoller started to enjoy his retirement, even if it were full of work. Then one day he announced to Sylvia that he and his good friend, former Titanic second officer David Blair, were planning a trip. Lights wanted to return to the island where he had been shipwrecked as a 15-year-old. When he arrived there at the time, he had been convinced there was buried treasure somewhere on the island. And now he wanted to return with David Blair. Yes, this is the same David Blair that walked off the Titanic with the keys to the binocular cabinet, and whose incorrect calculations caused the Oceanic to run aground. Sylvia quickly put a stop to this. When the Admiralty called Charles Lightoller on May 31st, it wasn't his first time that he had worked with them. Tensions had been growing in Europe as Adolf Hitler ascended to power in a country reeling from its punishment after the Great War. Naval intelligence reached out to Lights sometime in the late 1930s and asked the man about his time in the Dover Patrol. And they asked if he would be up for a little fishing trip. And when they said fishing, they meant for information. Lights found himself annoyed by the secrecy, but eventually learned what they wanted. They wanted Lightoller to go fish off the coast of Germany with a camera. The intelligence officers reluctantly agreed to allow Sylvia on board. They reasoned that an elderly couple fishing would avoid certain assumptions, but they were given orders to chuck their camera and maps overboard, if they were caught. 
The pair zoomed around the Frisian Islands, cruising, and Sylvia was often up on deck fishing or pilling potatoes as lights made maps and snap photos below deck. They didn't rouse any suspicions save for one coast guard. They were stopped and boarded by a man who asked where the captain of the ship was. Lytoller popped up on deck. Pipe in his mouth, bottle of gin opened in his hand. Looking a little like Popeye. Sylvia covered her face in embarrassment. The Germans waved them off laughing and sent the housefrau and her drunken sailor husband away with very sensitive photos and maps of seaports. After the very first night of fighting, the Lightholers received terrible news. Their son Brian was dead. He had jumped into service with the Royal Air Force. During a night raid over Wilhelmsven, Brian became disoriented and collided with a barrage balloon, their baby. The war had hit home, and the hits were going to keep coming. Some weeks before, it was over breakfast that Lightoller listened to Brian talking about planes. He, a weathered seaman, pointed out to his pilot son that it seemed as if boats had very little tactical protection from the bombers created by the Nazi war machine. Oh, that's not true, Brian likely said. The trick is evasion. All these planes must elevate their weapons in the nose to shoot. An example, like a Messerschmitt, would tilt seven degrees as its machine guns locked and loaded with target in sight. A person in a boat or a person in a plane would look for that little movement of about seven degrees and just get out of the way. It was this conversation Lights would recall as he sailed into the mouth of hell near Dunkirk. If you ever thought you have had a rough first day on the job, then I submit that Winston Churchill likely has you beat. It was on his first day as prime minister that Hitler crossed into neutral Belgium. Churchill had been ignored about Hitler before, but his instinct that Hitler was going to break treaties and invade France had been unfortunately on point. The Panzer line split the Allied army in two, and those left behind tried to desperately buy time for the British Expeditionary Forces, the Free French Forces, and some Belgian troops to get to the beaches of Dunkirk. But bombers had blown up the docks, meaning larger boats could not dock to pick up soldiers. The BEF were trapped. Boats that came for them were buzzed by the Luftwaffe as they waited like sitting ducks. Smaller boats would be needed to get the soldiers from the beaches to larger ships, but time was ticking away. All that remained on the beaches were two moles, walls, one west and one east. The larger destroyers couldn't reach the troops who were stranded after days of marching. They waited. And it was on this beach where Trevor Lightoller was waiting, watching German planes barrel through the sky, cruelly and randomly deciding which targets to mow down with machine gun fire. By May 19th, Churchill realized that he would need to send smaller boats in to help. Most of the troops were rescued by the Royal Navy, but on May 31st, hundreds of requisitioned boats, some civilian-controlled, headed to France as a show of strength. So as Lightoller headed to the northern French beach, which he intimately knew from his days in the Dover Patrol, was not just the heroic action of an Englishman rushing to sea to save his fellow countrymen. 
It was also a father trying to save his son. As Lytler departed Ramsgay, he took with him his son, Roger, and 18-year-old Gerald Ashcroft, a sea scout. Lytler was so seasoned a sailor that no one dared try to talk him out of taking the sundowner himself. It wasn't long before he was far and away ahead of the rest of the army of little boats. The Navy had been trying for days to move soldiers to warships, but the process was painfully slow. That is, it was slow until the Germans began picking off ships and lines of soldiers waiting on the beach. Communication was spotty, and many in Britain were tortured as they waited for information to trickle in. On the way over, Lytler played it safe, choosing to stay close to the HMS Worcester, but, but the presence of the destroyer did not stop. The planes from buzzing the sundowner in a likely attempt to intimidate the crew. They could not have known that they had picked the entirely wrong person to try to intimidate. He later came across the westerly, which was on fire. The boat was loaded with soldiers and petrol, or gasoline. And he had made it roughly a mile out with its crew before the boat exploded. That feat alone was heroic, but Lights was not done yet. He fully intended to go right up to the West Mole, no doubt in search of his son or one of the thousands of boys his age. But Lytler then received a good bit of news. The beaches, for the most part, were clear. Pulling into the harbor, Lytler climbed aboard the Worcester and found its commander, who asked him how many men he could take. Lytler decided to lie. At most, his capacity was 20-21, but most likely channeling Captain Hayward, who saved him and others from St. Paul after the Holt Hill ran aground, he decided he could squeeze in a few more. Oh, about a hundred, Lytler replied, and as the soldiers climbed aboard, lights forced them to throw their guns over the side. It was clearly an unpopular choice, but the weight. Roger then began stacking men below deck. At fifty men, Lytler said, it became slightly uncomfortable. At seventy-five, some had to go on deck. At one hundred and thirty, the boat began to shift. Lytler called it and set off back to England. It was uncomfortable, but the Sundowner handled it beautifully. It was on the way back that the Sundowner caught the eye of a Stuka bomber, and it began to buzz the ship. But that fateful conversation with Brian led to the safety of all on board. He gave Roger the helm as terrified soldiers watched helplessly. Seconds began ticking, and lights watched. Hand held in the air as a cue, he locked eyes with the nose of the plane. Seven degrees, Brian had told him. Seven degrees. The nose dipped. The arms were locked. Lytler's hand dropped and he bellowed, Hard apart now! Just as he had the night he kept collapsible be afloat, he bellowed the command and shifted the weight. Roger steered port, and the bomb missed the boat. Not satisfied, the bomber decided to take another run, and the pair did the same dance. What Lightholder left out of his interview with the BBC in remembrance of that day was gleefully remembered by others. The anecdote was probably too colorful for radio at the time, but Gerald Ashcroft remembers. 
He remembers the elderly man begin jumping up and down, shaking his fist and cursing loudly at the, quote, bloody hun who kept trying to bomb his boat. There is nothing Lightoller did better than shake his fist in the face of death. As they made it back into Ramsgate, the Admiralty counted every single man who walked off the Sundowner. One by one they came, and one by one the Admiralty's man's jaw dropped lower. They tallied 129, and Lights knew that wasn't right, so he ran back below deck and found one man asleep on the toilet. 130 men on a boat built for 20 as the last man emerged, a shocked tallyman stared at Lightoller. My God, mate, where did you put them all? After returning home, the family rejoiced to learn that Trevor had evacuated safely 48 hours before the sundowner arrived. All safe, thanks in part to a conversation Lights had with his youngest son. No doubt, bittersweet. Lights remained active in the small vessel's pool and ran some wartime errands for the Royal Navy, but tragedy was still looming for Lightoller. Roger, who so bravely went with his father to Dunkirk, was killed during a raid in France in March of 1945. He had almost made it to the end of the war. In the interview with the BBC, Lightoller describes Roger's working stacking soldiers below deck. The journalist interrupts and asks, that was your son. Sounding almost pain to use the past tense, but also proud. Lightoller responds. That was my son, yes. After the war, Light settled in Richmond and, alongside Trevor, finally found the perfect business for a retired sailor. A boat shop. In 1952, a great toxic smog filled the air in London. It was a public health crisis. Lights was already frail and had been a lifelong smoker, but one night he asked Sylvia to ring up some of his old friends who came to visit the frail but still spunky Lightoller. They chatted that night about memories and chuckled. That night he went to sleep and never woke back up. It seems that a man who spent his life in the middle of historic events chose to go out with one. The Great London Fog. Although he had once probably not jokingly told Sylvia he wanted to be set afloat and on fire like a Viking aboard Sundowner, Lightoller was given a small funeral and was cremated. The Sundowner sat in Ramsgate and then fell into ill repair. Eventually, the ship came into the ownership of a museum where she was repaired. And, in 1965, it made its way back to Dunkirk for the 25th anniversary under the command of yet another Lightoller. Captain Tim Lightoller of the Royal Navy, Charles's grandson. Captain Tim Lightoller was a bit of a war hero himself. At times, Lightoller's life seemed to be one full of tragedy and obstacles, and, and it was. A weaker man would have cracked. Sometimes, life in the moment is hard to read. It's unpredictable, and then you go to replay it in your mind, and the narrative makes sense. Everything lines up. From watching a, an old sea captain fill his boat to the brim to save you and your shipmates from certain death, to learning how full a boat can be to keep it afloat, even if it's overturned, or to a random conversation about aero engineering with information critical to your survival in war, and to have that information save your life and others.
life for Charles Lightoller was a series of interconnected lines and stories that culminated in bravery under circumstances most of us will hopefully never know. And you never know what you're being called to learn in those unimaginable moments. Who knows how many lives owe their existence to Charles Herbert Lightoller, the man the sea was not wet enough to drown. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast that examines the lives of those who were God's favorites, or at least thought they were. Join us in two weeks for our mini-sode on Violet Jessup, another extraordinary Titanic survivor. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon account to cover things like books or distribution costs on platforms. Sources for today's episode include Lights, The Odyssey of C.H. Lightoller by Patrick Stinson Titanic and Other Ships by Charles Lightoller The Christian Science Journal Timeline research of Dunkirk is courtesy of History.com and Britannica.com The BBC's History of Dunkirk and the BBC's Voices of Dunkirk series after our mini-sode on Violet Jessup, I hope you'll join us for our next big series on America's favorite fighting Frenchman, the Marquis de Lafayette. It's been an honor and privilege telling the story of Charles Herbert Lightoller. And I hope if his family is listening, that I did his legacy proud. We'll see you next time, friends. Were you attacked on the way? Yes, we had lots of fun on the way. Lots of fun on the way. Oh, lights.